0: Let's uh, read. Will you stand with me in reverence and respect out of God's Holy Word? We're at Philippians chapter 1. If you're physically able, stand with me and we'll read. We're going to begin in verse 27 and we'll take it down to the end of the chapter. Even though this section goes further than that, that's probably all we'll get to today. The Bible says, the Word of God says, Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, And now here is in me. Okay, that's the word of the living God. Thank you for standing. I appreciate that so very much. This is his holy word. Let's pick up in verse 27. The apostle Paul is talking to partners in the gospel. We're partners in the gospel. One of the ways that we can look at each other in the Bible is all through the metaphors that God uses for the body of Christ. We can legitimately call each other's brothers and sisters. We can legitimately uh, look at each other and say that. Another thing that we can say when we look at each other as partner. We're partners in the gospel. And that's what it should be. That's God's plan and sovereign will and purpose for us. The title of this message is Partners in the Gospel, the Priority, the Pursuit, and the Practice of Unity. The Priority, the Pursuit, and the Practice of Unity. And really, to be honest with you, that section that we're going to go through really goes through. Chapter 1, verse 27 to chapter 2, verse 13. But we're going to take it in bits and pieces and chunks. So this is the part one of the priority, the pursuit, and the practice of unity. Now in this, the way we've outlined it here, is we're going to look at the conduct, we're going to look at the characteristics, we're going to look at the commitment, we're going to look at the calmness, and we're going to look at the communion. The conduct, the characteristics, the commitment, the calmness, and the communion. Now let's look at conduct first. Look at verse 27. It says, Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel, so that whether I come and see you or I am absent, I may hear of your affairs that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Let me, let me just say this to you. The word conduct there, only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel, is it, it, believe it or not, that word comes from a Greek word from which we get our English word politics or politician. It means our conduct as a citizen of a colony or a state or a nation is what that means. It, 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 and that would have really resonated with the residents of Philippi because here was something unique about this. Philippi was a city um, that was under the citizenship of Rome. They were citizens of Rome and because Philippi was a Roman colony even though it was a thousand miles away from Rome in Macedonia they were granted special privilege and there's more to that history that we'll get into but they were granted special privilege as citizens of Rome. So they were citizens in the Roman government and that was really a source of pride for them and what he's saying is is just like you're citizens in the Roman government you're citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And see, when you're citizens of the kingdom of heaven, you know what? We're Americans in here, by and large, I guess most of us are. And we have citizenship, and there are some expectations that we have of the government. There are far too many nowadays, and there are some expectations that the government has of us. But you know what? We su- submit to those expectations because of a superior kingdom that we operate under, and that we're eternally a part of, and it's the kingdom of God. Now see, in this same verse, in this same, uh, same book, the Apostle Paul goes on to talk about that. Turn right and go to Philippians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. He said, just like you need to be good Roman citizens, let me tell you this. Your conduct as members of the body of Christ and the citizenship that you have in heaven is, is superior to that one. And the expectations and the conduct that goes along with that means we ought to be different. Look at Ephesians. I mean Philippians. Philippians. Look at Philippians chapter three, verse twenty and twenty-one. It says, "For our citizenship is in heaven, for which we eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to His glorious body, according to the working by which He is able to subdue things all to Himself." Our citizenship is in heaven. And one of the great problems in the body of Christ is we live like we're going to stay here forever. We need to live like we're leaving because we are. And our citizenship is in heaven and everything that we see, including the American government, is temporary. We better our best our faith and trust in the sovereign Lord who's sovereign over whoever's president of the United States. And He'll rise up leaders and He'll take them down and He'll do it in His discretion. He said, listen, just like their expectations, here's what happened in the body of Christ. This is a modern day phenomenon and it's plagued the church for 2,000 years ever since we've been around. But it seems to be now we're going through a cycle of prominence in this regard. That this is prominent. We have somehow or another been duped and had by the enemy that in order to win the world, we've got to be like the world. And nothing could be further from the truth. It is the difference that makes the difference. And somehow or another, we've duped into and we've bought into this lie that we need to buy into the spirit of the age and present Christ as being some cool, savvy Savior that you can identify with and never, ever, ever, ever preach the gospel about being judgment and sin and the responsibility you have that is appointed unto man once to die and after that the judgment that God's a just God, He will punish sin, and yet though at the same time He's a Savior, He's sent a deliverer. We present half the gospel in so doing that. And the Apostle Paul says, wait a minute. If your citizenship is in heaven, the only standing you are to worry about is the standing you have there. Most of the time we compromise in our lives because we're concerned about standing. We're concerned about preserving whatever we're going to lose anyway. We're talked into and duped by the enemy that we are to be ashamed of the gospel. That somehow or another it might cost you. It might cost you your job. It might cost you money, it might cost you position, it costs you your future, promotions, it could cost you relationships in the neighborhood, it could cost you relationships in your family. You know what the truth of the matter is? It could. Every single one of those scenarios are true, it could. But the only thing that what would dupe us into recoiling back from the gospel and being honest and loving people through the gospel and being a, a, a Christian that conducts themselves worthy of the kingdom is because we're afraid of losing standing that we're going to lose anyway. We've said this time and again, and we've shared this time and again, the gospel is offensive to a lost person, but the messenger must never be. It's the message that offends because it confronts their pride, but the messenger must never be offensive. And he said, listen, I want, when I find out if your conduct is worthy of the gospel... That you stand fast, that you're a member of a covenant community and and a kingdom that's not of this world. I love it. I think it's just bad to the bone when Jesus was standing in front of Pilate, and there he was silent the whole time. You know, and he's trying to provoke him, and you know, and he's he's standing there. And what I see him as is not some frail, helpless character, but I see him as standing there boldly, but yet with peace all over his face. And yes, hurt and pain and all the things that went with the scourging and all of that scourging. But what I see him there is is with quiet confidence, just looking at the guy. Just watching his whole case against him just come unravel before him without even having to say a word. And I just love it, because the only time he did respond was when Pilate said, don't you know that I have the power in my life, I mean, in my authority to save your life or take it. And Jesus said, let me call you on that one. You don't have any power over my life except what's been granted by my Father in heaven. Don't go to smelling yourself. Listen, whatever you go through and wherever God's got you, He's sovereign over it. It can't touch one of His own. We report to a new chief executive officer. He is our head. He is our Lord. He is our life. Our citizenship is in heaven. So there's the conduct. We need to conduct ourselves as citizens in heaven. Listen to me carefully and please understand this. In the body of Christ and in your walk as a Christian, it is the difference that makes the difference. Our lives should stand out as being examples, not of perfect people, but of imperfect people who've been forgiven and made free. And by the way, there's some peace that comes along with that, that evades a lost person. And then we could give a reason for the hope that lies within us. Have you ever had somebody come up? Let me ask you a question. Just be honest. And we said this a couple of weeks ago. Have you ever had somebody come up to you and say, could you tell me the reason for the hope that lies within you? Have you ever had anybody ask you that? The Bible assumes that's going to happen. Have you, is your life so full of hope and so full of confident joy and so full of peace that somebody would come up to you and say, you know what? Your peace offends me, but at the same time I'm attracted to it. Could you tell me where it comes from? I bet that doesn't happen to many of us. But you know what? It should. It flat should. If our conduct was worthy of the gospel, it would. He's saying, you know what? Let your conduct be worthy of the gospel. The difference makes the difference. Because let me tell you this. This whole theme of this chapter right now, and we're going to get into it, is about Christian unity. And he's saying, you know what? If your conduct is worthy of Christ, you can get along in the body of Christ. If the message of the gospel is anything, is it not a message of reconciliation? Isn't that it? Isn't that the core message of the gospel? How God was working in Christ, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, reconciling what? the world to Himself and has now given us the ministry of what? Reconciliation. Divorce is just as prominent. It really is. Inside the professing church, watch it, watch it, the professing church, not necessarily the real one, but the professing church as it is outside it, and yet we're going to get up in the pulpit and say, buddy, he's the Prince of Peace, but we just flat can't get along with this marriage. Do you expect the world to look at that and go, wow, Look what Jesus can do. You know what they do? Look at it and say, you know what? There's no difference between your life and mine, except for the fact that you've got some obligations I don't care to meet up to. Can we blame them for that? Romans chapter 5 says, We, through Christ, have received the reconciliation. That we are currently, as believers, if we've repented toward God and put faith in His Son, we are reconciled to God the moment we believe. And it is a ministry of reconciliation. And when the Lord has our hearts, we will be reconciled to one another. We won't endure one another. We won't put up with one another. We will reconcile with one another. There are only three things in the Bible that I know, that I read in the Bible, that are reasons reason for church discipline. Three things. And one of them is... Serious doctrinal error. Not little doctrinal error, but serious doctrinal error. The other one's immorality. When there's unrepentant immorality inside a church that it's known. That's a reason for church discipline. You know what the other one is? Divisiveness. Divisiveness. Let me say this to you. Could, Could you not conclude, could you not conclude, just from the attention that the devil pays to this, and how he works overtime to destroy it. How important it must be. Unity. Just that one thing. I mean, you know, I mean he spins himself and his minions spin themselves to create evil suspicion among us, cast doubt among each other, elevate one another, a person above another one because maybe they're not the same place spiritually we are. And he does all of these things, being whispers in our ears, and we start believing his junk. And pretty soon before you know it, we're divided. You know how you can conquer an enemy? Divide them. Divide them. So the conduct must be worthy. What are the characteristics of somebody whose conduct is worthy of the gospel? Well, here they are. He said, here's how I'll know that your conduct was worthy of the gospel. And that's, there are two things. That you stand fast in one spirit with one mind, and you strive together for the faith of the gospel. Those are the characteristics. First, stand fast in one spirit. Look at Ephesians chapter 4 with me. Turn left and go to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Ephesians 4, 1 through 6. It says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling. Here we go again. He's talking about your conduct, being worthy of the gospel. He's saying, I beseech you, walk worthy of your calling, with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring, proactively, striving, purposefully, trying to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Because why? There is one body, there is one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, there's one Lord, there's one faith, there's one baptism, there's one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. It's an endeavor. It's not something that we just do and we put on autopilot and say, well, we'll just, you know. And It's not that. It's an endeavor. It's a proactive reach out. It is, a, it is to value unity. Never at the expense of truth. Because truth is the only thing that does produce unity. I'm not calling for us to sacrifice the truth for the sake of unity. Truth is non negotiable. But in our pursuit of truth and our living out truth, God will unify us because this is the final arbiter between all disputes right here. If we can't come into agreement with what thus saith the Lord, we have no hope for agreement. And the reason we have hope for agreement is because the Holy Spirit lives inside us. And if He has His way with us, He will make us come into agreement with this because He wrote it. In other words, unity opens the door to the gospel. That's what He's saying. The gospel can have its way in a church that's unified. I can work through a church that's unified. I will work only through unified churches. And it opens up a door to the gospel because you know why? Because you get a collective bunch of people here and all of us with different this and different that coming from different backgrounds and different places spiritually, at different maturity levels, with different denominational backgrounds, and you name it, and put us all together, our only hope for unity is the Holy Spirit who lives within us, but when God can produce that with people who surrender their will to Him, it produces the kind of unity that evades everybody else and provokes the question, how is it possible? And the question is, or the answer to that question is, it's possible through the great reconciler of all, that's Jesus Christ who reconciled us to God through his death, burial, and resurrection. It's a portrait of the gospel. It portrays the gospel. It is the gospel. And what's the fruit of that? If we stand fast in one spirit, you know what we'll do? We'll be like minded. Josh just said a while ago how, what a blessing it was for him to be able to spend the week with, uh, what, 80 something odd students who were like minded. What a blessing it is to be in a church. Because of the humility and the fidelity and faithfulness to God's Word and the God of the Word, there's like-mindedness. That's a incredible blessing. Don't you just love it when you're fighting all week and you have contention and you're, you're the, maybe you're the only Christian in the environment that you're in? What a grace. It's a privilege to be around lost people. Don't gripe about that. God puts you there. But isn't it nice just to have kind of a little bit of oasis time? and get along with some brothers and have lunch with them or, or somebody that you know that's somebody body of Christ and you're like-minded and you have communion. Isn't that just wonderful? And say, so you know what? If you're standing fast in one spirit, you'll be like-minded. You can't help but be like-minded because all of you will have the same mind. It doesn't mean uniformity, but it does mean conformity. It doesn't mean we're all going to look and act alike. But we'll approach God with a sense of humility. And what will happen? Well, here's what will happen. There are diversities of gifts in this place. Patty Ray has a gift of service, so I'm standing out there waiting for Jill to come up, so we can go to McDonald's and maybe get some coffee. And I can no longer put sugar in it. <laughs> and um, and um, so I'm standing out there, and everybody's bringing in their stuff, and Patty comes up with the idea, you know, go get the tray, so that when you all come up with your crock pot, you can put it on the tray, and you know, and see that miss me. I'm just standing like a gooberhead, like. You know, waiting on my coffee. And so Patty's, see, because that's, that's, see God's why, that was a spiritual gift. And see, God's glorified by that. And that was, she was trying to be a help to you on the, on the, on the curb. See, that's, see, here's, here's what I'm saying is there are diversities of gifts in here. I'm not supposed to think of that, really, because that's not my gift. You understand, I should. But this was Patty's gift. This is what God called her to do this morning. And I observed that and I thought, Lord, that's you at work in the body of Christ right there. Serving and blessing somebody. So don't have to tote the crock pot all the way through here. That's South Georgia for Carrie. Tote the crock pot all the way in here down the hallway and do all that. you get somebody to help you roll it in here. Why? There are diversities of gifts in here, but there's just one spirit and the same Lord. And the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, that those gifts are used, those diverse gifts are used in such a way to bring unity to the body of Christ and to profit everyone. Can I say this? Wouldn't you like there to be some measure of organic life in a body? Wouldn't you like to know that... that? Can I say this to you? Your faith is personal, but it's not private. And wouldn't you like to know that rather than having to schedule somebody to serve God, you just do it. That there's an organic nature to the church. And when somebody who is a need meter sees one, they just do it. And you you see something going on. Or somebody needs a word of encouragement. I was so blessed. Anniston's got the gift of encouragement. And God spared her life at birth and brought her into her family. Now she's here in the body of Christ. And she can use that gift of encouragement to go up and say something sweet or kind to somebody and make your day. These are the gifts from the Holy Spirit. The gift of, you know, to edify and uplift and build up and to be a blessing to somebody. Don't wait and come into church and say, Bless me if you can. Come into church and say, How can I be a blessing? That's standing fast in one spirit. That's being like minded. That, 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 that gets us to the same mind that the Christ had. Have you ever heard the phrase? Have you ever heard this? Watch this now. 1 Corinthians 2 16, you know what it says? Who can know the mind of the Lord but we have the mind of Christ? Now, I'll confess to you, I've looked at scripture before and thought, okay, I've got the mind of Christ. That's wonderful. What is the mind of Christ like? You ever thought about that? Look at the mind of Christ. How many in here, let me just ask you a question, how many in here knew that the Bible said that you have the mind of Christ? Have y'all ever read that? How many? You a believer here this morning, the scripture says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 16 that you have the mind of Christ. What does that mean? I now... Has, think about that for a minute. What greater mind is there? I mean, look at a look at a shark. That's the mind that came up with that. Look at the sunset. That's the mind that came up with that. I mean, the creativity of God. Don't you ever just look at the animals and go, God, what were you thinking when you made Him? I mean, you know what I mean? We used to catch this fish when we go down to we go fishing down there for a croaker or something, and we get up at zero in the morning and go down there and freeze to death and catch five fish, and we catch a fish called toadfish, ugliest fish in the world, and it bites you if you try to get off the hook. And I used to think, God, I wonder why you made that fish. Just a thought. Why did you make that fish, you know? I mean, you look at all this stuff and you think, that's the mind that you have. You and I have that mind. Now, if we have that mind, that's good information to know, how is it to manifest itself? What does it mean to have the mind of Christ? And you know what? The book of Philippians tells us. I thought this was a hustle. Why don't you come over here? Go with me, will you? Philippians chapter 2. You ever read or hear or be encouraged or affirm that you have the mind of Christ and you're reminded of it, go to this text and it'll tell you what it's like to have the mind of Christ. Here it is. Verse 5. There it is. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who, Being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name that in the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's the mind of Christ. The mind of Christ is to say I have rights and I'm no long, I'm not I'm going to lay aside my rights for a season of time as God. I'm not going to quit being God. I can't do that. Jesus Christ is God. But I'm going to lay aside my rights as God to purchase and redeem Jeff Summer. I'm not going to I'm going to I'm going to put that aside and I'm going to take on human flesh. In other words, in other words. The mind of Christ is to love. That's the very definition of agape love. Is to say this. And we we've, we've got this working definition of agape, and we've talked about this time and again before. That one English word love doesn't do us justice. We've got to do in dig into the words it came from. And that word agape, and this is our working definition of it, is to be willing to lay aside your life for the spiritual benefit of others. That is the mind of Christ. You know what? You and I have that mind. And when it's operative, we will have unity. It says that. It says, Stand fast in one Spirit. There's only one Holy Spirit who occupies us. With one what? Mind. One mind. And Jesus was absolutely obsessed with one thing. And that was doing the will of the Father. And the way the will of the Father was manifest in His life was what? What was the one place... That was the absolute exclamation point that says, "This is the will of the Father for me." Right there, y'all. You can try to derail me, talk me out of it. Here he is in the Garden of Gethsemane. Can you imagine it? And he's wrestling, and he says, "God, look. Let's look through this thing one more time. Let's check it out. Let's just analyze. Look, here. I know we've been, we've planned this from the foundation of the world, but just for one more time, let's look at this again. Is there any other way? Because what he knew." He knew he was going to face the wrath of God. He was going to become everything that, detests, that he detested. He was going to become everything that put him there. Because the Bible says he who knew no sin, what? Became sin that we might become the righteousness of God in him. God was about God the Father and God the Holy Spirit were about to turn their back on God the Son for the first time ever. And he was going to suffer the wrath of God upon himself, not because of anything he had done, because he was sinless, but because of what you and I had done. And he said, Father, knowing that this faces me, can I say this? let just reassess it one more time. This is the Jesus human part of it. Is there another way? What comes back from heaven? There's not another one. If you do not go, Michael will die in his sin. He will stand before me one day. And there will be no mercy. It will be just justice. And he will get what he deserves. If you don't go. Everybody who died before you. Who were looking forward to this by faith. Through my spirit. be cast into eternal judgment. There is no other way. What's the mind of Christ? It's operative right here. Nevertheless. Not my will, but what? Thine be done. In the Garden of Eden, Adam asserted his rights and thereby squandered them. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus Christ reclaimed them by submitting to the will of the Father. The temptation of the enemy was right there. Same thing he does to you and I. You imagine it? This is extra biblical, and I don't like to go extra biblical, but I could imagine. Enemy was saying, is this how your father treats his children? you going to die for that bunch? What faithfulness or fidelity have they ever shown you? When have they ever one time worshipped you? The first one you made, the very first one you made, perfect fellowship with you wasn't enough for him. He had perfect knowledge of you. The worst sin that's ever been committed was committed in the Garden of Eden, because it was sin—it was sin against the greatest amount of light. He had full knowledge of God, and yet he went and went with the temptation. And he said, "That—that's who you're going to die for. Is there anything redemptive in this bunch? You mean to tell me that you're going to go through this for this bunch? Look, man, look up on the hill up there. There, there's the throne." Assert your rights and march yourself up there and throw everybody out of it and sit on the throne and let Caesar know you're coming for him next. Do it! Take it now, man. Take it now. You can have it right now. Forget about this bunch, this motley crew that you come to die for. You go up there and grab what is rightfully yours and you do it right now. And Jesus didn't go for it. He told the disciples, you better stay away because you will fall into that kind of temptation as well. He does that to you and me every day. Assert your rights. Keep that bitterness toward your brother. Keep that bitterness. Hang on to it. Protect it. They've offended you. You've got rights. You've got rights. After all, assert them. na nana, boo boo Hang on to them. There's a throne. You're enthroned, not Jesus. That's asking too much. You'll get to go to heaven. Don't worry about it. You want to die to that? Why? Why would you do that and go through all the trouble? After all, you're saved already. Why would you do that? Well, the next reason is this. Because when we stand fast in one spirit and we're in one mind and we're like-minded, we will strive together for the faith of the gospel. It's like rowers. That's the picture here. Somebody's in a rowboat and you've got a team of rowers and everybody's got their responsibility. And boy, they better be keeping up with it. Because if you're not... If one guy's not rowing properly, then all the oars get caught up together. And pretty soon before you know it, you're going this way, or you're turning this way, and you're off course and off base, and you're not striving together. You're not moving in the same position. We better be headed toward Jesus Christ, and that's it. We've got one destination. Did you know, I used to watch, and Aaron, you'll remember this, and you'll appreciate this, and I'm going to throw this in here just for you because you're a Georgia fan, and God will forgive you. But I know that one time I was watching on the newscast. Well, they were practicing, and they had their jerseys on. You've heard me mention this before, and I was just struck by the fact that in their practice sessions, they had jerseys on. It had big letters right here that said "team," and in just little bitty letters, it had me. And I looked at that, and I thought, "Wow, that's the way the What if the body of Christ operated that way? What would our jersey look like if the body of Christ operated that way?" It's like, you know what? There's probably a bunch of Heisman Trophy candidates out there. Maybe you'll get an NFL contract. When you step on this field, it better be a little you because we're out here to win, not to shore up your ego. And that's what the body of Christ is. We're not here to shore up anybody's ego. We're here to glorify Him. We're here to present Him. And let me tell you what a Christian jersey looks like. It has Jesus up there in big letters and there is no me. Boy, if we get to that point... If we get to that point where we're just a bunch of dead people, you know, what happens, you know what happens there? Let me tell you what winds up happening, and we'll close after this. We stand fast in one spirit, united. And we value that because of agape love, because we have the mind of Christ. The mind of Christ says, I will yield up my rights for the eternal spiritual benefit of another. That's what the mind of Christ said. The greatest act of humility that's ever been is that Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, would come down here, set aside His rights as God, be treated as a criminal, brutally murdered on a trash heap outside the streets of Jerusalem in nakedness and public shame for somebody like me. If I've ever ever considered myself as being humble, in light of that, I am an arrogant, nasty, prideful man. That's the measuring stick right there. We're to fall down to humility and say, oh my, put that mind in me. If you've got that mind and I've got that mind, we'll strive together for the faith of the gospel. We'll work as teams. Joe will call up and say, listen, I've got a prayer request and we'll go to prayer because every member, every member of Joe's family is set one and that's Eva. is lost and they will go to hell today if Jesus Christ came back. Is that perspective? Is it? Is that perspective? What else matters? Other than the gospel, what else matters? Not a thing. Not a thing. He said, so we'll strive together and we'll, have, we'll be like-minded and you know what happened? 28. Not in any way terrified by your adversaries. It will it'll, it'll remove fear. You know, the greatest, probably the greatest... The greatest um, tool of the enemy on a believer is to evoke fear. You know how, you know how absolutely uh, neutralizing fear is? Fear will shut you down. There's a lot of fear going on in the United States right now, a lot of uncertainty. You know, you read the news reports. I read one the other day about the number of churches that are being foreclosed on. I used to be in the banking business, and we used to just have an appetite. <laughs> For church loans. We used to go anywhere we could get them. If we we compete. with. We just wanted church loans. And man, a church can't borrow money nowadays unless they prove beyond a shadow of a doubt they don't need it. Which is probably good. But boy, we had an appetite for them. And now, you wouldn't touch them with a 10-foot pole. You know what they're doing? They're taking them and putting CVS pharmacies up. Because most of them, think about it, they're in prominent locations. They're on the corner of this and this. So you tear down the church and put up a CVS pharmacy. Fear about uncertainty, about uncertainty about our government, and the unbelievable recklessness of our current administration and Congress. is out of control. Debt is soaring and nobody's got the political courage or convictions to do anything about it. On it goes, the unrest in the Middle East. Just name it. On and on and on and on. And there's a lot of fear and discouragement. But you know what? The enemy can neutralize you and shut you down if you buy into it. But we're citizens of heaven. And this has passed away anyway. Amen? If we'll strive together in one spirit and we'll have the mind of Christ, there'll be no furrow on our brow. There'll be no fear about the future. The Lord will remove it. And when the fear is removed, the same fear that provokes the enemy to try to put it off on you comes back on him. That's what it says. Look at it. He said, not in any way terrified by your adversaries. The fact that you're calm in the storm is proof to them of their future destruction but evidence of your salvation and that from God. If there's a calmness and there's a stillness in the middle of the storm, if we're resting... You know, we were singing that song a while ago and I was thinking I'm going to remember that part of the lyric because I'll probably have to use it later on in the message. So I'm going to try to do it. The Lord has promised good to me. I believe that's it. Listen. His Word my hope secures. Amen. His word, my hope secures. Therefore, if you fear God, it removes all other fears. And there's a calm assurance that we can walk in that's light to the lost people. We're partners in the gospel. We're not going to finish. We'll wrap up right there. Let's all slap on a jersey. Wouldn't it be great if we had enough money We'd come in here with a bunch of t-shirts on? And we get them in here and just have Jesus on there and there would be no me right there. But shouldn't that be the operational garment of a believer? It is Him. If we strive together for unity in the body of Christ by recognizing that we're as one Spirit and we catch a hold of His mind and we have His mind and we'd be willing to give up our rights rather than assert them for the spiritual benefit of other people. we begin to love. He'll create the kind of unity that the enemy is terrified by terrified by and the reason he's so terrified by it or the reason he goes such great lengths to try to destroy it is because it scares him he knows what the body of Christ is capable of when their Lord has his way with them. it's really not what his Lord, what the body is capable of, it's what our Lord is capable of through us, amen what does your jersey look like? just honest, I mean honest I mean honestly don't answer out loud but could it be that your jersey fill in the blank from last week for me to live is fill in the blank for me to live is what according to Paul it was Christ but I'm afraid from a practical standpoint according to us there's any number of things we could put in there what does your jersey look like does it have Lindsay up there or your name up there and then Jesus is absent, or maybe he's been resigned to some spot that he'll never condescend into. He'll keep you. He'll save you. He'll bring it to fruition, but I guarantee you one thing he won't use you. What does your jersey look like? Slap it on. And let's be unified in the body of Christ. Stand fast and strive together for the faith of the gospel. And scare the enemy. Slap to death.